to the next episode of the Story Revision Podcast. Here, I am your host, Stephen Thibodeau. I'm with my two guests, Jacob Masterson and Ethan Coe. Hey, guys. How are we doing? We are doing well. Today, we are researching a story that is quite mysterious in its origins, the story of Aladdin. So many of us watched it when we were kids, but do we know the official origins of those stories? And going into our research, we really don't. It is a story with quite a history, quite a mysterious origin. And I, when I first reviewed this story, I was quite interested in seeing how it had such, it had such an interesting background fusing with such a wide range of cultures being in the Middle East, being like a, a mixture of so many different cultures. And I had to ask my friend Jacob Masterson how how accurate really was this story. And Jacob, having the knowledge that he does about these kinds of things, I thought Jacob would be the perfect guy to ask him about something like this. Hey, Jacob. What's up, man? Thanks for having me on. So, um... I did some uh, quick research on Aladdin to uh, prepare sort of um, how we're going to structure this uh, podcast. By first, I really want to um, give some background as to uh, where the original story goes and the sort of the origins of the uh, Disney tale itself and uh, basically how uh, the creators of the Disney classic integrated it and how they were able to... Um, use it to uh, create a narrative that would forever um, create in the, in the minds of an American audience of um, the general uh, idea and concept of the Middle East and how it defines um, our mindsets to this day. And um, I would like to begin with... Um, sort of a hypothetical, a very interesting hypothetical. So imagine, if you will, a, a Disney movie set in 17th century Madrid, Spain. The title appears and the opening song starts. The lyrics being performed by a Swiss yodeling master sings out European days. The scene pans over. Strangely, Madrid is portrayed as a winter paradise rather than the hotter climate than it formerly is. In this whimsical tale, you'll have an Irish folk tale of the 11th century being depicted. The main heroes are two Russians, both scantily clad in traditional 15th century German clothing, despite both being Russian, being set in Spain, and despite the extreme cold weather. As depicted, the woman's clothing is completely dysfunctional and purely sexualized, again, despite the cold and cultural inaccuracy. Outside, the sea of snow and ice again in Madrid, for some reason, you see the beautiful buildings in Madrid, all which are loosely balconed in design, but have stereotypical Spanish colors and a bad attempt to make it more authentic. Despite this strange setting, they're all speaking modern French. Despite them speaking modern French, however, any mention of food is made in English solely. Despite them being Russian, all non-main characters are incredibly offensive stereotypes of Germans as overly controlling, the French being overly feminine and weak, the English having rotten teeth, and no depiction of Spanish culture because the creators just simply forgot. The ending is a touching romantic wedding that takes place in a Dutch windmill by a tulip farm because you know Spain has a lot of those. 
The film is widely acclaimed and beloved by third world children the whole world over and shapes their ideas of what Europe entirely is over the rest of their lives. Now that hypothetical comes from a YouTube channel called Hakeem. Shout out to him for um, this interesting uh, look to it. But exact, essentially this is how Aladdin is to a typical Middle Eastern um, inhabitant. It's redundant. It ridicules and completely uh, misses the mark on a proper representation of Middle Eastern culture. And this conceptualization originates in the mind of the Orientalist. The Orientalist. Now, what is the Orientalist, we say? Well, we can't define the Orientalist without the Orientalism. Now, Orientalism is the study of the Eastern world. It is a study of the discipline of the societies which look interchangeably savage and mystical. And the origins of Orientalism comes from a, a Palestinian-American professor named Edward H. Said. And essentially, since his publication of his work known as Orientalism in 1978... Much academic discourse has begun to use the term to refer to a general patronizing Western attitude towards Middle Easterners specifically, but it has also been used against Asians and North African societies. In Said's analysis, the West essentializes these societies as static and undeveloped, thereby fabricating the view of Oriental culture that can be studied, depicted, and reproduced in the service of imperial power. Fanaticism, violence, etc., always associated with the Arabs, with Islam, and so on and so forth. Arabs are always being killed. They're always associated publicly in the, in the public mind, in the public image, with what is negative uh, and, and, and regressive. Implicit in this fabrication, writes Said, is the idea that Western society is developed, rational, flexible, and superior. And so looking back on the background of Aladdin itself, Aladdin itself, from conceptualization, is a work of Orientalism. It comes from a collection of Middle Eastern folk tales compiled during the Islamic Golden Age, known as One Thousand and One Nights, and essentially it was worked. It was collected over many centuries by various authors and scholars around uh, West, Central, and South Asia and North Africa. But the works themselves came together under the mind of a French uh, academic. And some of these stories have been attributed to Oriental thought because when we look at the original story of Aladdin, it, despite not being Middle Eastern, like what's being depicted in the film, it is rather set in China. The original plot is somewhat similar, but it's heavily different than the film. For example, in the original story, um, Aladdin had a mother, and Princess Jasmine didn't really have a large role like in the film. Um, and she also had a different name. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce that name. It's uh, I'm going to fumble that hard. But um, in the original, there's also um, two um, genies, and they're spelled completely different. They um they sort of play a role. There's like a more powerful one, and then there's a less powerful one, and that that dynamic is important. 
And I think it kind of falls into uh, the the actual movie where the genie is sort of um, not as powerful with Aladdin, but he's like all God, all all knowing, omnipotent. With um, once he gets under Jafar's hands, and um, basically the original Aladdin, again as we mentioned, is from the get-go Oriental. And what we mean by that, well, like in the intro, it completely distorts uh, Middle Eastern culture. And just like what the Oriental does, it sort of conglomerates it, and it makes it completely um, reductionist and um, uh, unresourceful in uh, truly expressing the the general concepts of Middle Eastern culture specifically. And the fact that we call it Middle Eastern culture is proof that the Oriental um, mindset and the Oriental thought is pretty prevalent in our society because we reduce uh, the distinct cultures of the Middle East as the Middle East rather than Persian or Iraqi or... Um, Ottoman Turk or regard, you know, whatever, just like we do with Europe. And so the the concept of Orientalism is pretty complicated, and we won't go completely into that because the the point here is that we're trying to jump into Aladdin specifically, what goes wrong in Aladdin, and what we can do to fix that to a modern audience and sort of shift it and make it a recognizable and presentable to the original plot while uh, isolating the Orientalist elements of the original story and concept. And so one trope and element that I like to pull from the film, which is one of the biggest controversies came from the opening uh, sequence of the film where... um, there's a film there's a song that starts as sort of like the opening track it's called Arabian Nights and um one of the lyrics starts off with quote where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home for the uh, home video release of the film they actually removed the part where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. Uh, they replaced it with something pretty insignificant because they still kept the part where it says, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home. And uh, in the opinion of Professor Walter Denny, the distinguished professor of Islamic art at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, he says, quote, Like those first three or four minutes of the Disney movie Aladdin are basically very prejudicial. They create a very, very false and very, very prejudicial view of the Islamic world. And so then we start with an opening shot of Agrabah, which is a city of mystery, as they call it. Um, And the setting is pretty interesting because um, it is set in the middle of the desert, um, disregarding the cradle of civilization, which, you know, 
develops off of uh, waterways, like rivers and oceans, specifically in the Middle East. That is where most of your typical cities were sprung up from. And Agrabah is kind of just in the middle of nowhere. Then we have a poor attempt at recreating the, the Taj Mahal, even though the Taj Mahal is Mughal. And Disney itself has came out and said that um, Aladdin is supposed to be Arabic. And as we can see, you know, using a Mughal temple as a template for, um, you know, creating a setting that's not inherently, you know, Arabic. And we know that Agrabah was supposed to be set in Baghdad, Iraq, which was built on a river and has plenty of plantation, but Agrabah does not have any any sort of presence of any irrigation or plantation whatsoever. And something interesting about um, its location itself, which is why we think it's important right now to change um, our conceptualization of the Middle East specifically. There was a poll done somewhere around the election cycle in 2016 where um, a pollster asked uh, American voters whether they would support the bombing of Agrabah. And to the shock of no one, to be honest, over 30% of Republican voters said they would support the bombing of Agrabah, while 19% of Democrats said they would, vo they would support the bombing of a made-up city that doesn't even exist. And so it's kind of interesting to, to pinpoint the, again, the, the oriental uh, conceptualization of the Middle East to the point where people support bombing a no a, a a city that isn't even real but the name itself evokes that idea of mystery of mystique of savagery and you know it's mysticality uh yeah so if i could funnel that into a question like why why do you think that it's important to be historically accurate when you're making a film like a lot I know that Disney in their other films have kind of strayed away from being historically accurate and it brings up the question like does Disney purposely distort history? I think um I kind of rephrase that. Do, does Disney distort these histories like out of ignorance like how the makers of these films do not know the cultures which they depict or do they distort them in order to appeal to a western audience? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I really think that obviously Disney is trying to make a profit. And so it kind of has to play upon both balancing a budget and making a profit, and as well as um, uh, targeting a general audience. And um, there was a really interesting take from Professor Will Humans, uh, who is a professor of media and public affairs at uh, George Washington University. He said this quote, If you're going to spend a lot of money on it, you can't really do anything real. It has to be imaginative. It has to play to fantasy. It therefore has to rely on stereotypes. And so capturing the audience of the 1990s, the American consensus, is when you understand the context of, um, you know, America's 
uh, involvement in regime changes in the Middle East, beginning with Iran, and then eventually into Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we sort of get a sense as to sort of the the uh, concepts of, you know, how people think of the Middle East and, you know, this this idea of, you know, perpetual war with the Middle East with, uh, you know, uh, against the typical bad guys. You know, when, when we think of modern Hollywood and their depiction of Muslims, you know, they tend to be the bad guys. They tend to be the terrorists. But regardless of all politics aside, I do think that, you know, historically, I think we can agree that Disney has not represented history um, the, the the absolute best. You know, uh, a company being formed in 1920 obviously, you know, isn't going to have the absolute best representation or the best, you know, uh, arsenal of projects. But, I mean, there's... I think there's a catch to that where we sort of have to recognize the, um, you know, the, the mindset of the times. And obviously, I think we have to do better now to reconceptualize how we see the Muslim world. Because, you know, when we, when most, when, when typical Americans learn about, uh, you know, the world history, they kind of gloss over, you know, um, the Oriental you know, the, the the Far East, we typically only keep it, you know, Western European and uh, colonial America. But I think we it, it's sort of our responsibility to, you know, present, you know, what, what Islamic culture has to offer. You know, it has a deep history in uh, contributions to architecture, mathematics, science, um, Law, justice, and all, all, and the conceptualization of civilization itself, you know, that, you know, at, at one time was dominant over European, you know, conceptualization of society and sciences and, and art and, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think over time it's kind of been deduced and I think it's time that we sort of do them justice and, you know, shine a light on the true nature of Middle Eastern culture. Absolutely. And um, not to cut in, but um, just obviously I wasn't necessarily doing research as you guys are, but um, rather research to kind of benefit the revision of the um, kind of make it more accurate and uh, better suited for today version. And um, kind of like how you guys are talking about Disney, like sort of changing the... Um, kind of like the narrative a little bit and some aspects of it historically to fit a more Western audience. Like a big issue I found going through it that people had with the, um, the 1992 version is kind of the Westernization of Aladdin himself and the genie making them kind of stick out from a lot of the characters in that they have a lot of stereotypically Western traits and, um, kind of behave in different mannerisms and ways. And most of the like more, um, not historically, but more stereotypically depicted um, Arabic characters in the film. Yeah, I like to pinpoint that, like the Arabic um, stereotypes were big lipped, big beard, um, typically larger stature, typically like like chubbier, I guess. Um, missing teeth was another one. Big nose, and they do a horrible. I don't. I don't. 
I don't know why, but they do a horrible job of accents. Like, I had to slit a few throats, but I got it. One of the things I kind of thought a lot about when I was thinking about this is that, like, yeah, like, well, I, I think I think ignorance definitely could have been a role, and it most likely was a factor, but I also think that the reason why they depicted some of the characters in the way they did was to make them more relatable to a Western child and make them more, I think, more watchable to a younger audience was was specifically what Disney was aiming for. I think that it's it's definitely a challenge trying to create historically accurate content that can be relatable to a younger audience because I think the the directors of the film on they they came out after the release and they described specifically what they were the morals that they wanted to portray to the audience. And I think uh, my next question to both of you guys was how can Disney going forward make films that can be both historically accurate and characters that are relatable to a a kid in the United States? Um, I think just um, like I'm just skipping forward because I'm sure Jacob has a lot to say on this, but um, obviously Disney just as the world continues to get more and more connected with um, social media and everything, obviously just all that, everybody always says it sounds cliche, but it is a much smaller world. Um, a lot of these big Hollywood movies now are becoming, becoming to become more and more international in that they're trying to appeal to more and more audiences. So I think in recent years, you can start to see a little bit of that with Disney um, producing films like uh, Moana, kind of appealing to more um, like a culture that wouldn't necessarily be as represented in America and stuff like that and I think just that's kind of how they start to uh, really fix that issue is by appealing more to cultures that are underrepresented in America possibly but then appealing to other audiences while also doing that in a manner that will just from narrative alone appeal to that western audience who might not be familiar with these cultures and customs and stories I mean I think there's a big deal with um making things generally, you know, acceptable to kids, I guess. Like, you know, I don't I don't think it might be necessary to, you know, tell kids about the brutalities of the Holocaust, you know, straightforward. I think you could be really creative in sort of metaphorically representing, you know, the Holocaust, which I think um, some media does pretty well. Other media, maybe not so much. But uh, the things that stand out for me mostly about Aladdin isn't even, like, Oriental-based, but, like, it just doesn't really make any sense, just common sense in general. Like, for example, um, a lot of the uh, characters in the film are seen, like, <clears throat> you know, like, with showing a lot of skin, you know, they're, they're clothed, they don't have as much clothes, and the most obvious is obviously, you know, Princess Jasmine. But the thing is, you know, if we have, if we use some common sense, these people are gonna get a heat stroke because you know it, it's not a proper attire to wear. Um, you know, if when you're in the middle of the desert, you know, typically even Orientalists do justice of you know presenting you know their their figures, their characters in reasonable attire for their conditions. You know. Loose, loose clothing to keep air circulating in, you know, your tunic or 
you know, whatever you're accustomed to wear. And none of the characters in the film really are overdressed besides maybe like the Sultan, which his attire is actually Persian. And uh, Aladdin's uh, attire is is Turkish. And he actually wears pants, he actually wears female pants of a 17th century Ottoman female. So I think, you know, the the style of clothing is rather interesting. And then Jasmine herself is presented, like, uh, she's presented with a stereotypical, like, belly dancer, in um, Hindi-type attire, which they do that with a lot of fem- women in the film, the overly sexualized women. And not to mention that Jasmine herself is 16 years old. Um, you know, I don't know if a Western audience would be generally okay with that um, sort of um, openness, I guess, of a 16-year-old. But sort of a big thing about... The, the worst thing about Aladdin in my eyes is that Aladdin's racism, I think, is more insidious. It isn't like Song of the South where obviously, you know, it isn't saying, like, slaves are, you know, slaves are good or, like, it isn't, you know, presenting Middle Eastern people, you know, saying, hey, these people are barbaric. I don't think that's their, you know, that's not their, um, that's not their intention. But it's so subtle because, you know, in the minds of the creators, it's already been, you know, shifted by the Oriental figure of the Middle East. And the fact that the creators themselves never discussed with any Middle Eastern experts on the conceptualization of character design or or architecture or landscapes. You know, they just kind of went with what in their minds was, you know, Middle Eastern. And I think it's, I, I think it's sort of irresponsible and I think we can do better. And Disney did try, but they fell hella flat on their face with the 2019 release. Um, we're not going to jump too much into that, but it's been criticized for whitewashing. Um, there's even like a white actor playing some Middle Eastern prince and, you know, critics kind of didn't really like the new one. So we're just going to avoid talking about that one. We're going to keep it with the original one. Well, I think again, like it plays into like, it's a struggle trying to create a historically accurate story while being still watchable to the majority of of a Western audience, especially to a younger Western audience. I think it's easy for us to... I think it's easy for us to say, like, yeah, oh, we wouldn't, like, we would enjoy, like, a historically accurate version. But speaking for the majority of people, especially young children, I think it'd be, it would be challenging to present the same story across being historically accurate. I guess, I think Jacob maybe would argue otherwise, but I, I think that... It, I don't think it would be watchable for an American child to have a story with, like, have a main character like Aladdin, like Jasmine, do, that do not have the same American mannerisms. Because I don't think, like, at that age in the development, children are equipped to understand that the differences between people who are removed in different cultures. See it. Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to switch to Ethan, who will take the stage on this 
conversation. I think, Ethan, going over the story, what specifically in the story that jumped out to you that you thought that a you would like to change about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, obviously, just with everything Jake's been talking about, I'll get to the morals in a minute, but um, obviously a huge issue just with kind of um, portraying this movie and this story in, like, the right setting historically and in the right light. So, um... I'll get into the plot a little bit, but um, essentially we talked it over and um, decided that we wanted to both represent Middle Eastern groups as well as stay true to the um, and original kind of traditions of the uh, the original tale from um, A Thousand One Arabic Nights. Um, so the story takes place now in the westernmost portion of uh, modern-day China. Um, which actually lies historically on the Silk Road, which could explain a lot of um, kind of if Disney had gone with this, it kind of gotten could have kind of gotten a, a crutch for some of those mm-hmm. um, like overlapping customs and beliefs, just because right. it would be a cultural hub with a lot of places, kind of like a modern day melting pot. So right now I'm looking at a quote from Ron Clements, who was the director of the 1992 film. Quote: The original story was. When he's referring to the original stories, we're referring to the the original French manuscript of the story. It's still I still think it's frustrating about Aladdin is that there's no original folktale in Arabic history for the story. Go back to it. The original story was sort of a winning the lottery kind of thing, like having anything you could wish for or would, would be the greatest thing in the world, and having it taken away from you is bad. But having it back is great. We didn't really want that to be the message of the movie. Yeah, so um, um, so talking about that, just um, like we obviously kind of wanted to get away from that moral of um, you know, like oh, he finds the genie and the lamp, and kind of we wanted to get away from that moral of you know, like essentially there is no moral. It's just kind of um, like how we talk about revisionist history earliest form of fairy tales and um folk stories were just kind of something happens to like a fool or a kind of like a dope for lack of better terms and like a spin on that with the 1992 version making it heavy poetic justice obviously like portraying aladdin as like the street smart but still kind-hearted like the diamond in the rough as they call him so um keeping some elements of that teaching obviously the moral to kids of you know it pays to be a really good person but then also teaching some of the harder lessons of life, like, you know, nothing really comes for free. You have to work for things. So, um, because, like, in contrast to the original, talking about it being a dope, Aladdin isn't necessarily, like, a street-smart orphan. He's actually a, lives in a household with um, two other people, his mom and his dad, and is kind of portrayed as just a, a lazier, um, doesn't really want to do anything, uh, child and his dad's trying to get him to uh like to get him to work and his dad eventually passes away trying to get him to work so aladdin rather than like responding by trying to work and provide for his mother keeps going outside and playing with his friends in the streets and not really doing anything so um that's kind of a a twist that i want to make to this one is still keep some of the better aspects of the 1992 version kind of how like good happening to good diamond in the rough like provide for the little guy and you'll eventually have success but then also adding the twist of like 
you have to become your own man. You don't just kind of get to win the lottery. This is the revised version of Aladdin, given everything we've worked through. Aladdin is a poor orphan boy from Zizmet, which is Uyghur, or the traditional Xinjiang language for home. His parents were merchant traders on the Silk Road. They were killed by thieves early in his life, and ever since then he's had to fend for himself and grow up on his own. Through scrounging for food from markets to feed himself and the other poor orphans who run the streets, Aladdin is able to make it through to early adulthood as a cunning and wise young man. He learned the values of hard work and kindness as many times he relied on others for help in getting food and pickpocketing. In the city, the Da'afu, or Commander, Commander Ziyu, Da'afu is the traditional ruler of this region. Commander Ziyu had set up a proposition. The man who proves himself to be worthy would be allowed to marry his daughter. Aladdin knew of the princess's beauty and knew that a rich, faraway ruler would come in from the Silk Road with proof to be the greatest man for his daughter and likely would be able to take over the territory as a result. One day, while away stealing apples for younger peasants, Aladdin encountered a very old wise man in the street and offered him a few of his extra apples. The old man in return offered him a secret treasure if he would help him as he had no strength left and knew Aladdin's young bones would be able to handle it. He took Aladdin far out into the desert and had him push a large rock to make way for a hidden ladder in the ground. Down the ladder, Aladdin discovered an ancient room where a large pile of treasure lay lit by torches. He was instructed from above to grab, a, to grab the lamp, and in the corner he found three lamps, two sparkling with diamonds and gold, and the last a dull and worn brass lamp. He tossed up the he tossed up the last one, but the old man scoffed at this, and tossing the lamp back down, says it wasn't the lamp he asked for, and out of anger rolled the stone back over top the ladder, trapping Aladdin. Aladdin, stuck, went to examine the lamp closer, and began to rub it in the torchlight. A large genie emerged, instructing him that he could make any wish he wanted, and it would come true. If I can wish for anything, then I would wish to be free. At this, the genie made a pick and shovel appear, and soon Aladdin was out in no time. It was night by the time Aladdin re-emerged, and it was very cold, and he was very hungry in the dark desert. Genie, I wish for some warmth and some fire, said Aladdin. Then I shall give you everything that you shall need. This isn't at all what I asked for, scoffed Aladdin. No, but it gives you everything you need. Use the flint to create a fire for warmth, and use the bow and spear to kill a lamp over that ridge for food. Aladdin, frustrated, became accustomed to the backward wishes, and eventually had learned many trades over the years. Genie, I wish to be a healthy man. As you wish, master. Replied the genie, somewhat sarcastically. The genie then gave Aladdin a large caravan, and lots of good, tradable goods. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Asked Aladdin, annoyed at the delay in his response, request. Use the ancient route and your location to your benefit. A wealthy man does not come into by accident, but rather by choice and ingenuity. Trade and make yourself known as a great man of the people and of this city. Replied the genie, calmly snapping back. So Aladdin did just this, and it wasn't long before he controlled the majority of the city's wealth and business. But all the while, looked out for the little guy, just as he had done when stealing apples from the fellow orphans. However, one day, the old man reappeared, and began to publicly criticize the wealthy merchant. 
saying he built his fortune off of luck and had no business being powerful, as he had once upon a time been a lowly thief. Genie, I wish I had a way to clear myself of all these harmful accusations. The genie gave the young man nothing in response. Genie, I wish for something. And I granted it. Over the years, I have given you all the tools to build you to this point. You have learned the lessons of humility, hard work, trades, and wisdom. You are a man in yourself, and you know one to tell you who you are. Replied the genie in a kindly, fatherly way. Given this knowledge, Aladdin went to defend himself. Yes, I did once steal, just as I did once beg and run through the streets. I stole to provide for the lowest among you, just as I watch out for the same now that I have all I want said Aladdin when addressing the peasants and those under him in his trading business who had come to hear these accusations. Now at this point, the princess was still yet to be married, as no worthy man could be found. And after hearing of how Aladdin carried himself and how he defended himself, she begged her father to consider him as the greatest man for her to marry. After hearing of her begs and pleas, and after hearing of Aladdin himself, he decided that he was the perfect man not only for his daughter, but also to take over his territory and rule it justly. Aladdin married the princess, who controlled the politics of the city and ran that aspect of it, whereas Aladdin controlled the trade and relationships, making sure that no citizen was overlooked and approached all diplomatic matters as he did everything, a kind-hearted, genuine man. As for the genie, Aladdin was sure to be free, yet wanted him to stay in Zizmet and help him rule. I still need your help to help rule my people and be a just king. Thanked Aladdin. Once again, I have granted you all you will need, and you are now a man. You will be a fine and just ruler, replied the genie knowingly. Following this, the genie was freed, and once again traveled off to help another young man. The end. So it does kind of get a little bit of like the Disney cliche there, like, oh, I still need you, now I've taught you everything you need to know stuff, but um, I do think it does teach Princess, but I think at the end, like, including her, how she really makes it her decision to make Mary Aladdin and how, um, like, she rules the majority, like, she has power and stuff like that, um, kind of will sort of start to uh, handle that aspect. I think, obviously, just if this were a longer narrative, that character would be a lot more explored. But um, for the most part, I think this really tackles some of the issues such as, uh, like, the culture clashes that were shown, um, the changing of history and then also just um kind of the lack of moral yeah like I, I think that having a specific historical structure in this version i think it, it, it helps the viewer have like a greater regard for the setting of the story the characters and and just like a general perspective on on history and i i think that it's so important to have like a general historical structure instead of just a mismatch of just one big region and an entire history and culture that's largely been neglected from American media over the last decade, uh, over the last century. Absolutely. And I think obviously just that's been our whole goal. So um, we're looking we accomplished it. Obviously, there's no such thing as a perfect narrative, as um, I think we talked about in some of our seminars. There's always going to be things to uh, change, especially as your go- years goes by. But um, we think this is a positive start in the right direction. Yes, definitely. I think I thank you guys. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything else you guys like to add um, before we end?
for today. I'm good. Alright, once again, thank you guys. And thank you guys. It's been our presentation on Aladdin. Thanks for tuning in. Alright, see you guys.